This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. My name is Judy Cho, and I am a nutritional therapy practitioner. I work with clients to get to root cause healing, and oftentimes that is using a meat based diet to work on gut health. Today, I'm so excited. I had the pleasure of sitting down and talking with Dr. Dominic or Dom D. Agostino. I am a huge fan of his work. He is an associate professor at the University of South Florida. He has done so much research and biohacking in the keto space and really moved the needle with keto as a nutritional therapy protocol. Dom teaches students at the Morsani College of Medicine and the Department of Molecular Pharmacology and Physiology. He focuses on topics such as neuropharmacology, medical biochemistry, physiology, and neuroscience. He is also a research scientist, and in the interview, you'll see a lot of the research he has done in the past and even now, and how a lot of things he tests and studies around the ketogenic diet. Well, let's get right into the interview.、Um, so, hey, Dom, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm a big fan of yours.、Um, if you can introduce yourself and share your story and how you kind of got into ketogenic diets and all your research. Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for having me, Judy.、Uh, yeah, I've been doing this research for a little over 10 years now, I would say. And、uh, I had a very、uh, high interest, personal interest in nutrition、uh, coming out of high school, I would say.、Uh, very into fitness and, and working out and that sort of thing. And nutrition was sort of the main lever to pull <laughs> in the fitness community、right. when you want to increase strength and things like that.、Uh, I, I did. I went into a nutrition program in my undergrad and I took a PhD level, graduate level、uh, nutrition courses as an undergrad. But when I was looking to, I was looking to go to med school and I entered a lab 
to, to do research and it was a physiology uh, neuroscience lab. So I ended up kind of getting a little maybe more interested in neuroscience and then ultimately uh, applied to a neuroscience program and did uh, a study the neural control of autonomic regulation. So uh, the brainstem mechanisms that control uh, respiratory rhythm and mm-hmm. sympathetic tone and, and actually, you know, recording from these neurons, that was part of what I did. And uh, when I did my postdoctoral fellowship, it was, again, uh, my PhD was on the neural control of autonomic regulation in the context of hypoxia. And my postdoctoral fellowship was on essentially the same thing, but in the context of hyperoxia, which really mm-hmm. only occurs under hyperbaric oxygen pressures that occur in hyperbaric oxygen therapy, but also in military situations. So uh, special operations community specifically, and they had a problem of seizures. So that's where nutrition comes in. So uh, I was actually very excited to be able to introduce nutrition uh, after studying many different drugs and antioxidant cocktails I discovered that the ketogenic diet, which I didn't have a favorable view of the ketogenic diet going through nutrition program, because I I think we just briefly touched upon it. It was like the last resort thing you do when all drugs fail in epilepsy. And I just, I don't remember hearing anything more about it. And then that a protein sparing modified fast could kill you because it would, you know, you'd be deficient in certain nutrients and things like that. So I I did not have a very, but I, I knew personally that carbohydrate restriction was a very effective way to promote body composition alterations, you know, uh, fat loss. So I, I knew that, and I knew in the fitness and bodybuilding community that it was quite popular to do a ketogenic diet for, right. you know, for changing your body. Uh, but I did not know there was actually a lot of research behind the ketogenic diet for seizures. And central nervous system oxygen toxicity seizures manifest as a grand mal or tonic-clonic seizure. And... Uh, What's interesting about the ketogenic diet was that it it tends to work for seizures like Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, Dravet syndrome, and many other uh, uh, seizure-promoting pathologies independent of the etiology, meaning that, you know, you could have temporal lobe epilepsy, you could have, you know, all different forms, absence seizures, and then the ketogenic diet tends to work. And that was very interesting to me. So I wrote many different proposals and finally got one funded by the Department of Defense to study uh, nutritional ketosis, but they did not like the ketogenic diet because it's high in fat, right? So this is like, maybe we'll touch upon this and the dangers of fat, not only for cardiovascular health, you're going to, but also for like uh, performance, you know, it was a special operations community. So my task was to develop a ketogenic diet in a pill. So I worked on that and some things worked and some things didn't. So we threw away the things that didn't. And I focused on the ketogenic compounds that had the highest neuroprotective anti-seizure effects. Uh, And then we also evaluated the things that could preserve and enhance uh, physical performance or we we measure motor function. So like a little rat running on a treadmill kind of device. So, and things that increase the performance, you know, we kept those and throw away things that don't work. So uh, as we, you know, 
and fast forward 10 years. So I did that about 10 years ago, fast forward 10 years from now. And now we study uh, ketogenic diets and exogenous ketone supplementation and the combination of the two in many different animal models of diseases from Angelman syndrome, Kabuki syndrome, absence seizures, cancer models, uh, you know, Alzheimer's models, all sorts of things. And we've moved a number of things into human clinical trials. So, uh, and now we're actually, we're looking at weight loss and, and cardiometabolic markers too. We're, I'm in the middle of a trial, but I'm blinded, but I see the data coming in and it's interesting to look at the, the insulin levels and, and other cardiometabolic markers. So it, it's been quite a, a wild ride, <laughs> focusing mostly on seizures, but it going in many different directions. That's pretty cool that, um, you know, over the years, it's become more nutritionally supported in terms of the ketogenic diet. Out of curiosity, did the Department of Defense ever switch to, okay, maybe the diet, the nutritional component itself is okay, and it's not just the pill form that we need for the protective mechanisms? Yes, they have. Uh, You know, I serve on uh, different study sections. I'll say that and uh and serving on over the years in different study sections you know five years ago maybe a little bit earlier five or seven years ago you would never see anything like ketogenic diet relating coming in but now i get called so often because i'm sort of like maybe a thought leader in this area Mm -hmm. and i'm just overwhelmed with sort of federal requests to (laughs) review ketogenic diet um protocols uh, for everything from, you know, viral illnesses uh, to cancer, to performance, to hypoxia. Uh, And, you know, I think it's because of more of a mainstream interest in ketogenic diets and, you know, funding agencies realize, okay, maybe there's something to this. They probably poke around a little bit and say, okay, so so many people, millions of people are doing this and they're not dropping dead. So, uh, and the scientific rationale seems to exist for them to propose for different applications. So, uh, so it, it really, the research has exploded. You just do a Google search and uh, a PubMed search would probably right. be more. Uh, and, you know, in 2016, 17, there was like a lot of discussion. Oh, you know, the, the interest in ketogenic diets has peaked. It's a fad diet and it's, you know, you're not going to hear about it another year or two, but it has the trajectory can continues to go up, you know? And for me, I just look at clinicaltrials.gov and PubMed as an indication. And if you look at clinicaltrials.gov, that's actually going up even more exponentially and when those studies get published, right. it, that's like looking into the future, like five years from now, right? Because it takes a while to get that work. So the interest will only increase uh, at least in the next five to 10 years based upon, you know, the window of things I'm looking through. Federal grants, clinicaltrials.gov, things like that. That's that's such good news to hear. I mean, especially since the um, 2020 to 2025 dietary guidelines came out and it's, yeah. <laughs> you know, they lowered sugar a little bit, but they're still anti-saturated fats and meats. And so, I mean, that's good to hear. Maybe that will push that group of people to, you know, change their opinion, especially if more papers get published saying that a ketogenic diet is also beneficial for other groups of people, other than people that have, you know, neurological imbalances and such. So, yeah, I would like to, you know, just say that, uh, we study the ketogenic diet in the context of a 
deficit. <laughs> so that deficit could be a genetic disorder. It could be a metabolic disorder. It could be a brain disease. It could be insulin resistance. Uh, you know, with that said, it has definite therapeutic applications. Uh, it, it is also within the spectrum of diets that humans can consume. <laughs> obviously. Is it ideal for someone to follow a ketogenic diet all the time? I think maybe we may get to these questions. Uh, you know, is the carnivore diet ideal? Is the vegan diet ideal? If you follow a vegan diet, it will, it, it's also within the spectrum and could prove it could promote survival, <laughs> but would it, would it be optimal? So that's the question of what is the optimal diet. And I think that for many of your listeners or watchers or uh, the question of what is the optimal diet uh, involves a little more nuanced discussion than what is, you know, uh, a diet that will move the needle on certain, certain disorders. Right. Um, and, you know, kind of going into that, those nuances. Um, you know, when I first started a ketogenic diet, I looked into so much of your research and it was so fascinating. And then I just followed some of your lifestyle. So I remember specifically that um, your cholesterol markers had gone up on a ketogenic diet. Yeah. And I know you're a little bit of that biohacker. Um, and so you said, I'm going, um, and I think you said, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you started eating more sard wild sardines and just eating a little bit more fish just in case. So do you still do that? Are you still concerned about, I mean, we all understand that cholesterol kind of goes up, um, depends on LDL, HDL, triglycerides, all of those markers, but is there a certain point? So one, do you still do the fish um, and focus on that to lower your cholesterol markers? But on top of that, within the ketogenic space, um, I guess of uh, more of the research that's been coming out, is there a certain cap that the LDL does get concerning even on a ketogenic or carnivore diet? Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. Yeah, all good questions. Uh, a little bit to unpack there, but I will. I'll just come from a personal standpoint. Uh, when I followed the ketogenic diet, I had a book. Uh, maybe I have it at home now, but uh, I had a book by the Johns Hopkins group by uh, Dr. John Freeman, uh, the late John Freeman, and then he uh, his he mentored uh, Dr. Eric Kossoff. Uh, who then developed the modified ketogenic diet, which was much more liberal in protein, uh, which is sort of like the diet that I follow. But that diet then in 2008 was then used for adult epilepsy. Mm -hmm. But for pediatric epilepsy, that was really the only diet was the uh, what you would call the conventional ketogenic diet or the like the original ketogenic diet, which is like 88%, 90% fat. So, and so I started following that diet just out of curiosity because I started reading so much more about ketones and I was kind of new to, you know, revisiting nutrition again, um, you know, during my fellowship. Um, and then as I kind of transitioned into a tenure track associate uh, 
associate professor position, I continued with dietary research, but many thought it would be academic suicide <laughs> to steer away from drugs into that. But I knew that this worked. So, and I wanted to find out personally, like how it worked and how it made you feel. But the, the plan for a ketogenic diet was very high dairy. So that's how you actually get your calories because mm -hmm. dairy was, you know, easy to, it's, it was easy to get that amount of calories. And for kids, you know, they would have uh, those issues with them stunting their growth and things like that because the calories were a little too restricted. But come to find out it was actually the protein was too restricted. Right. So there was, uh, so that, that's a whole another discussion. But uh, for me to follow a ketogenic diet without losing a lot of weight and a lot of muscle, I had to really get a lot of calories from just drinking heavy cream and using a lot of butter and egg yolks and things like that. And it was primarily, I found personally, and I think the data and other people's experience that I communicate with would support this, is that the dairy fat, so dairy fat's much, much higher proportionally in saturated fat relative to steak, which is actually quite high in monounsaturated fats or chicken or even an egg yolk. It's like oleic acid. Mostly it's like monounsaturated fats, uh, has some saturated fat too, but dairy fat is proportionally much, much higher in saturated fat. And I was literally getting over 200 grams a day of dairy fat. And when I backed that down to gradually backed it down to 50 grams a day, my LDL went from really high, doubled the upper level, back down to the upper level. And now uh, now it's actually within kind of within the normal range, the upper normal range. And the thing that really changed for me was just lowering the saturated fat, eating more monounsaturated fat, and then polyunsaturated fats, you know, eating a lot of fish too, switching uh, and getting a lot of fish, introducing sardines, uh, packed in olive oil. Uh, I eat a wide variety of fish and, but I still eat quite a lot of beef and uh, some pork and some chicken, turkey. Uh, we live on a farm and we have cows and uh, we have, our neighbors have free range. I, this morning I made eggs and I had, I had eggs from Walmart. <laughs> I, had a, I had an array of eggs. I had uh, Eglin's best eggs, my, uh, my neighbor's free range eggs. And then I had some eggs from Walmart that uh, we just happened to have. Uh, and I cracked three of them in a pan and each one was distinctly different in the yolk. <laughs> and it ranged from the intense yellowish, uh, orangish color, color was the free range eggs from my neighbors that he, that he gives me. Um, they all kind of taste the same, but, uh, but obviously like, you know, the nutrition is different uh, in eggs. And I eat a lot of eggs, a lot of steak, a lot of fish, and I backed off on dairy, and that has really significantly changed, uh, improved my uh, LDL uh, numbers. And uh, I think it's important to measure ApoB too relative to just LDL uh, C. And LDLP too is also kind of important. So in the carnivore space, I see people, they don't eat a ton of dairy, but their um, LDLP, um, I think some people I've seen are in the 1500s. Um, and I see people, yeah. it's like they eat a lot That's of liver, normal. they eat yeah. a lot of organ meats, and some people are even in the 3000. So is there yeah. an, a cap that you would find concerning or is it just TBD? You know, it's a really, really good question. I get asked this question a lot. Uh, if all other, I feel like kind of just kind of like on autopilot, like if all other biomarkers, your blood pressure, your hemoglobin A1C, HSCRP, triglycerides, uh, 
you know, if many other things are in range, 1500's not, uh, for my opinion, not that bad. Mine was as high as 2600, I think. Uh, okay. At one point, I think it, with an MR, NMR, it was like 32. That was, that's like the first. So what, what typically happens though, even if you're not changing your diet, if you're on a high, super high saturated fat dairy-based diet or carnivore diet or whatever, the first three months, you're gonna see some pretty big anomalies in your, uh, and then after three months, after 12 weeks, you know, you start to see numbers start to normalize, but for many people, they do stay persistently high. Um, but if, if it's in the context of a calorie deficit, sometimes the numbers normalize as the person's body weight normalized, but then you have people who do lose weight. <laughs> they're in a calorie deficit, they're improved so many different things, but they still have a persistent uh, elevation of LDLP uh, and LDL. So the question is, is this a protracted suicide? <laughs> Are you, uh, and I think we don't, do not have enough information uh, what these, single biomarkers mean in the context of a ketogenic diet or just a low carb diet. Right. We don't, we don't have enough information yet. Uh, but I would be uncomfortable. I'm not comfortable with an LDLP above uh, 2000. I'm not comfortable with that. So, uh, so I did, and I know at least from my experience, everybody's different. Everybody's a unique metabolic entity, but uh, but I've looked at enough blood work to know that if you can make some dietary changes and bring that down, and I think that's a prudent thing to do. Yeah, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, one thing you mentioned was the ApoB. Um, you know, why why is it um, important to check that marker against, um, and especially not just looking at LDL? You know, I'm not a lipidologist, but I try to absorb everything that uh, Ronald Krauss, you know, is putting out and uh, met with him on occasion and also Peter Atia too. Mm -hmm. uh, it, I think it's a better, a better reflection, a better okay. indicator of what's happening. Uh, it, it's a better atherogenic marker in the, especially in the context of a low carb diet and high okay. fat diet. So um so, and there's different reasons for that. And I'm not so much of an expert. Uh, I do get asked this question a lot and I'm still trying to understand the literature. I have, I, don't know, I could turn my computer and show you a stack of papers. Uh, but I think it, from, from my perspective, if, if all the other biomarkers are going in the right direction and this is going in the wrong direction, mm -hmm. I'm not that concerned unless it's like above 2,500, the okay. LDLP at least. Um, but I, I think it's good. So we just had this discussion right before getting on. Uh, this is that we need to start measuring ApoB and because uh, in addition to LDL for the study that we're currently doing. Um, and I think um, the value of that is going to be important because I'm, I'm still trying to understand the numbers from, you know, um, uh, from comparing many things. It's, it's really important to capture data uh, all at the same time. So, and we can talk about continuous glucose monitoring and measuring insulin right. and measuring a whole host of cardiometabolic markers in addition to the whole spectrum of the lipid profile and for that data to be collected at a specific time point. So that's kind of what we're doing now. 
and I'm still trying to make sense of the data, but I can tell you that there's a pretty high degree of variability uh, between people, more variable than I thought, to the point where we don't have enough statistical power. So we have to, I'm doing I, IRB modifications to actually like double the amount of participants in our study because uh, there's quite a lot of variability. And I would emphasize that maybe to your listeners too, that, you know, if somebody's experiencing something uh, that's not, may not be reflective, will probably not be re- reflective of what you're gonna experience. Like you really need to go to the literature and we need more studies on this. Yeah, I mean, I've checked several or many, um, you know, cholesterol panels, and I'm obviously not an expert, but they vary. And the diet within a um, a carnivore ketogenic diet will vary too. And so it's just interesting that it's not we're not all wired the same, absolutely. And then people are well, maybe it's the genes, maybe certain you know APOE genes, or there's certain markers that will then make it harder for us to digest saturated fats. Um, there were yeah. sp- two specific genes that someone brought up to me and I forgot what exactly they are, but there's a lot. In- <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> yeah. Fatty acid oxidation. There's like 30. Actually, we were going oh, through wow, that. Okay. Uh, you can have, I'm going through all the different fatty acid oxidation disorders. There's disorders where people can't make ketones. Uh, there's uh, where, you know, if they fast, they literally will have a seizure and faint. Oh, wow. Have a seizure. So, uh, you know, and there's a spectrum, like people may have SNPs where they're just not like a robust, they do not have robust fatty acid oxidation, for example, in the liver or even the skeletal muscle. And it might be on a spectrum. So they just might feel unwell if they follow a, a higher fat diet and their level of fat tolerance is low. Maybe they don't make certain lipase enzymes, the pancreas, you know, they might get pancreatitis. So I've seen a couple examples of that uh, where other people just thrive, you know, eating, eating fat. So there is really a spectrum and some people say, well, just stick with it and adapt to it. But I've communicated with people who just can't adapt to the ketogenic diet. So I think, and, and some people kind of feel like almost guilty they're doing it wrong it's like i just need to stick with it and well no well maybe it's this approach is not for you and i know you know i do study the ketogenic diet in the context of seizures and i think in that case it has a lot of important benefits and people should stick with it more especially if they fail drug therapy but if you're just doing it as a lifestyle approach or a weight loss approach there are many this is just one of many many tools where you can create a caloric deficit to lose weight you know, uh, low carb for sure, but ketogenic just, I think people need to keep in mind that it's, it's, it's quite a restrictive diet. It's on that spectrum of things that humans can tolerate, but is it optimal? That's a more important question. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So I have clients where their blood glucose will go down, their A1C looks better over the uh, months and CRP, but there's still very little ketones are produced. So their blood sugars in the mornings look good. They're, you know, within range of a person that doesn't have prediabetes, but their ketones will be less than 0.5. And so they're like, maybe I'm not eating enough fat or maybe, you know, there's so many thoughts of, okay, maybe my body has become super sufficient in burning my ketones. So now I don't see it in the blood. Um, But maybe like you're saying, it's that this diet is not as ideal for them because some of these people obviously have lower energy and that's why they're working with me. But um, what are some ways that then they could test I, that this diet isn't for them? Well, uh, just jumping back to the point of ketone measurements too. So, 
your blood ketone is a function of ketone production and ketone utilization, right? And uh, if I consume exogenous ketones and then I can measure how fast it clears from my blood, it's kind of like a ketone tolerance test, okay. right? And that's uh, for someone who's sedentary, typically that it stays elevated a little bit longer, but uh, for other people, it can get cleared pretty fast. Like we, you know, your tissue, there's a very high tissue uptake of ketones. The brain uses ketones uh, quite a bit. Uh, so keep that in mind. And I actually think in the context of like intermittent fasting and a weight loss diet, breath ketones are a more viable measurement of that because your acetones, you're not, it's volatile organic compound and you're blowing it off. And uh, when I actually do a 72 hour fast, my blood beta hydroxybutyrate tends to go up, but and then it kind of like stays around two, 2.5. And if I just go for a little walk, it almost goes down to like 0.5. Oh, but wow. I know I didn't stop ketone production. My ketone production went up, but my ketone utilization increased because of physical movement right. and just moving more of the ketones into the tissues, whereas my breath acetone will go up. And in many ways, it's a more satisfying <laughs> ketone to measure because it's true fat oxidation. Like I can, you can kind of feel when your body is in this, like when you're fasting and it's high fat oxidation, you can taste it on your breath. Like you're just melt fats melting off your body. You can almost see it in the mirror. Um, And that's when my breath ketones is actually pinning the biosense uh, breath acetone meter, which I use. Uh, I've used a couple different devices. So I would, if people do not have high blood ketones, I would recommend, you know, maybe trying uh, a breath ketone device. And uh, that has been very, very insightful for me uh, to use this device. And I know certain apps are going to integrate it into it, like the zero fasting app and and other, this is a device used for mostly for clinical research, but it's becoming more of a biohacker kind of device. Um, so I steered us off on a little bit of a tangent, but what was your other question? Sorry. No, no, um, yeah. I, I think that's good. I mean, I remember when I first was in, um, was started a ketogenic diet. I went to KetoCon, one of the first ones, and um, there were, you know, people selling obviously the ketone monitor uh, via your blood. And then there were the breath um, analyzers. But I think I, there was a period where it just didn't pick up. I think it's picking up a lot more now mainstream but there was something about it, like the it has to be perfect breasts, or there was something that wasn't as user friendly, and it just didn't work mm-hmm. as well. But they always touted back then, like these are the true ketones that you're using um, in your system, versus the blood may just be like floating amounts um, and not necessarily yeah. what you're using. So it's not a great test to see are you truly producing enough, or if you're just utilizing it and you just won't know with the blood. There are caveats to measuring breath ketones. Okay. One is if you've had a glass of wine within 15 minutes, okay. it's going to show it's going you're going to get a false positive. Oh. Uh, so re- you really don't want to be eating and drinking while you're using it, at least in the in the last 15 minutes. Um, that and uh, so the the bio the BioSense device by Readout Health is a little bit different than some of the other devices. The Ketonics was relatively good and a couple other level, I think, is another. But the uh, the BioSense device, when you blow into it and then it, it takes just the last, it does deep lung. So you blow into it and it's not measuring that, but towards the end of the breath, then it captures that, which is deep lung. And that's sort of the 
patent technology that they have. And that that's probably why my numbers correlate much better with beta hydroxybutyrate. And if I'm on a eucaloric diet and I'm not like in a calorie deficit and I'm just sitting at my desk and not running around and everything, my, uh, and, and this is published, I think uh, they've published papers on it, that my, my beta hydroxybutyrate blood level, it correlates very well with uh, acetone. But when I started using this device uh, and I was fasting and doing other things, I was like, your device definitely does not. I was criticizing them and saying, your device is not correlating with my beta hydroxybutyrate. And you publish this and it's like, you know, my data is not supporting what you're publishing. So we kind of looked into it a little bit more. Uh, my friend Peter Tia also did it and found like the same thing, like his breath acetone was coming up and is, you know, relative to his blood uh, beta hydroxybutyrate, it was proportionally higher. So, you know, the more I looked into this and the more I studied it myself and started asking other people to make measurements, what was clearly happening is that when you're in a calorie deficit, when you're fasting, your fat oxidation is going, is quite high. Uh, But in a calorie deficit, your tissues more or less get more hungry uh, and there's greater tissue disposal of the ketones from the blood. And that's why it might not be climbing. Uh, so, so that's why under some can, under many conditions, I kind of prefer the, uh, the breath and then you don't have to buy the strips. You don't have to prick your finger. You just blow into the device and it's kind of a little bit easier too, but I, I like pricking my finger anyway. So that's not, it's not like a big, um, turn off to me to, uh, to measure blood. But, I, but what I do, I like to measure blood. I me- I'll even measure urine and breath and then look at everything together when I'm really testing and I oh, want to understand sense. something. Yeah. If I really want to understand a ketogenic diet, like if I, cause I tried different types of ketogenic diets, if I want to understand uh, a ketone supplement or a ketone ester, or if I want to understand what's happening in my body during, um, during a fasting Uh, experiment. You know, I know that there's all these nuances we just mentioned, but is there a ketone amount that's ideal to see in the breath and the blood um, when being on a ketogenic diet? Uh, I, if you're not trying to manage like a disorder, Mm -hmm. uh, most people are not going to register. Most people have like 0.1, maybe when they wake up 0.2 or three level of ketones. So if you're a blood level of 0.5 to 1 millimolar, you're like, you know, literally like 500 times more. It's your breath ketones are your, well, your ketone level, blood, urine, or breath is directly proportional to the amount of fat that you're oxidizing. So the liver is, you know, beta oxidation of fatty acids contributes to the production of acetyl-CoA and that condenses to acetoacetate and then beta-hydroxybutyrate. And then that spills into the blood. The main uh, ketone in circulation is beta-hydroxybutyrate. It's in a ratio of acetoacetate to about four to one to three to one. And then acetoacetate spontaneously decarboxylates to acetone. Then you can measure that. So when that's, when those things are elevated, that these biomarker, these ketones are not elevated in like a normal person eating a standard diet. Uh, When you carbohydrate restrict or fast, the presence of those is indicative that you're in a high fat oxidation state. So if someone wants to confirm that they are actually indeed 
shifting away from glycolysis towards being fat adapted, keto adapted, uh, they, uh, there's no really, I can't think of any other better, if you measure insulin, I guess, well, that's another subject we can get into, but, uh, but ketones are the easiest way to show that you are fat adapted, really. And I think that's important for most people, especially trying to lose weight. But does it matter if you in the morning, like when I first started a ketogenic diet, sometimes my blood, uh, my ketones were like 7.0. I never get that now. So now they're maybe 1.5. So I do run on the higher end of the in general, but a lot of my clients, they're at 0.3, 0.4, and they don't eat any carbohydrates. Now they eat a, you know, meat based diet. So their protein's probably a little bit higher. So they probably see the effects of the um, gluconeogenesis and their blood sugar tends to run a little bit higher than if you're on a ketogenic diet, but within under a hundred. Um, but is there a range that you'd want to see in the morning? Um, so is someone that has like 0.5 less fat adapted or less fueled by fat than somebody that has like 2.0 in the morning? Yeah. So morning can vary and our morning hormonal physiology varies in individuals. Like some people have a more of a dawn effect. And uh, so I've been measuring insulin and, you know, with with CGM device, I'm measuring, you know, glucose too. Um, So what I think is happening, I measure cortisol too, and uh, which is in the normal range, uh, even relative to if I was on a higher carb diet. What I think it's happening in people that are on low carb diets, ketogenic diets, is that they produce proportionally more glucagon. Okay. Uh, so you know you have a glucagon uh, insulin glucagon ratio, and and people you know just don't measure glucagon. So yeah. that's why uh, you know in in the study we're doing now, uh, we want to measure glucagon. It's just it's something that people I I'm I'm going to put myself out there and saying that the low ketones that people are experiencing in the morning may be due to some, to some extent, uh, in elevated cortisol, uh, you know, driving gluconeogenesis, but, but glucagon, higher glucagon is probably what's going on. There's some data to indicate that, uh, especially we do know that elite athletes who are choosing to use a low carb approach definitely have higher glucagon levels. And so we only understand it at this point in time in the context of elite athletes, but they're also pushing their bodies really hard. So they're sort of maybe in a little bit more catabolic state. But, uh, but I think that's kind of what's going on. And and maybe some people have higher levels of glucagon, Uh, you know, and and I, I kind of trend, I definitely have lower ketones in the morning and then by mid-afternoon and evening, that's when my ketones peak. Okay. So I think it's important to measure ketones across the spectrum of the day so you get a, a better better picture. Morning ketones, probably not the most accurate okay. time to measure ketones just because our metabolic physiology is probably most variable mm-hmm. in the morning when we wake up. Some people do have a pretty dramatic sort of activation of sympathetic nervous system, cortisol, glucagon, ketone, uh, glucagon, insulin ratio. Um, Quick question, uh, just to clarify for the audience, what is glucagon? And then if your glucagon glucagon is higher, um, is that necessarily a bad thing on a low carb diet? Yeah. Well, glucagon is the sort of the, in simple terms, it's the antagonist to uh, insulin. It is a hormone that's released in the context of calorie restriction, 
uh, fasting, uh, sympathetic nervous system activation. It triggers uh, lipolysis. It triggers glycogenolysis. Uh, it is a catabolic hormone. Insulin is a storage hormone. So we store uh, glucose and and, and lipids in, trigly in triglycerides in, in adipose tissue. So they tend to be, not always, but they tend to be inversely related. Yes. So high, you know, you eat a high carb meal, insulin goes up, glucagon will be down. Uh, you skip a couple meals, you're under stress, you need to mobilize uh, glucose for fuel, but you're not eating carbohydrates. So what happens is that glucagon uh, is released and that can trigger uh, gluconeogenesis and glycogenolysis and uh, help help increase and, and get that uh, glucose into circulation so we can use it for fuel. So I think it's a normal part of our physiology to wake up and want to, you know, have, we need high energetic demands for our brain. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, it's like you're starting the engine to your car. There's a lot of systems that come online when you wake up, right? So you're moving your body and things like that. So it's it's a normal and appropriate uh, response for our metabolic physiology to get more glucose into circulation in anticipation. Uh, and a lot of it's behavioral too. So um, if you're on vacation or if you're doing something, there's an, an anticipatory uh, effect and a couple of publications on this that I need to look into more. But there's sort of an anticipatory effect. If you have to wake up early to go to the the airport or something like that, you know, you're, I can see it on my CGM, for example. Mm -hmm. So there's a behavioral component, and the behavioral component to eating and glucose control and things like that is a whole other complex subject that is very fascinating to me. And we're studying components of that now. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I would think that glucagon would also vary, uh, vary depending on the person. So um, someone like me who's more out maintenance, maybe my glucagon will be lower than somebody that is obese and on a ketogenic diet. And then now having to tap into those fuel sources within the body, their glucagon might be higher and that might be normal compared to what might be normal for me. So I could see all of those things vary. Um, but one of the questions I asked you prior uh, when we were going off on the tangent is, so how, what are there any markers that we can figure out, okay, maybe this ketogenic diet, maybe a low carb diet is ideal, but not as far as a ketogenic diet. So you're asking me what markers can we measure to determine uh, if a ketogenic diet is ideal as a lifestyle kind of yeah. diet, right? Uh, it's a good question. So I, I kind of a little story, background story, I guess maybe 10, 12 years ago, I uh, maybe gave a talk, it might have been the American Epilepsy Association or something, where I was ca kind of casually mentioned in the middle of my talk that I was I was on a ketogenic diet and, uh, uh, and I was following the Johns Hopkins protocol. And someone asked me later, I think we we're at a poster or something. It's like, oh, I I did not know you had epilepsy. How long have you had? So it was very strange even, you know, years ago that because there was no news about sure. ketogenic diet. So I embraced the, the diet primarily from a research standpoint to understand what it felt like running on ketones. And it's not like your brain runs on glucose or ketones. So the homeostatic mechanisms that maintain your blood glucose are very powerful, like glucagon, you know, gluconeogenesis. So glucose really doesn't go down that much. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And, uh, but when ketones are elevated, they do provide an alternative energy substrate to your brain. And they are not just an energy substrate. It's, uh, ketones are like a hormone and they activate many different pathways. There's ketone receptors, there's epigenetic regulation, beta-hydroxybutyrylation, which is a topic of my, my student's PhD right now, studying Kabuki syndrome. Uh, but to get back to the topic, I started following a ketogenic diet and uh, I gravitated toward eating a ketogenic diet through the, the, the beginning and through the whole tenure process in the fact, because it increased my work productivity. Mm. I didn't get hungry. I had more energy flow. So I did it for two reasons, primarily research, but I gravitated to eating this way just because I felt better and I didn't have the fluctuations and the dips in energy and things like that. So I embraced this as a, uh, in the beginning, I did the classical ketogenic diet and then gravitated to a modified ketogenic diet, which I do now. Okay. And I am, I don't want, I, I want to be as agnostic as possible about dietary choices. I do think we are omnivores. I don't think, uh, a carnivore diet is optimal. I think it can be for some people, but I question whether that would be the optimal approach. Uh, so to go back to your question a little bit. So you have two different things. There's objective biomarkers and then there's subjective effects. Subjectively, I feel that a low carb ketogenic diet, and some days I just do completely carnivore. Uh, but I also, I, but that's rare because I would prefer not to do carnivore, but sometimes I just don't have like salads and I need to go to the store or whatever. Uh, but, uh, but you know, the, the biomarkers, we do a cardiometabolic profile, which is, uh, the biomarkers that I think are most appropriate are continuous glucose monitoring, you know, and I'd have to plug, you know, the devices that are out there, the Dexcom, the Abbott, Libre. I use Levels Health as a platform that I view my my CGM data on. So that that's a very, very insightful. And uh, if you go from a normal diet to uh, a low carb diet or ketogenic diet, your blood glucose regulation is like perfect. Like yeah. you are always stay within a certain range. And I think that is uh, will promote steady fuel flow to the brain, higher productivity, less more satiation you know, just from the combination of the fat and the protein together. Uh, but from cardiometabolic standpoint, you know, we don't talk about it much, but blood pressure is something <laughs> to measure a lot. So glucose, insulin, hemoglobin A1C, triglycerides. If your triglycerides start to become elevated and they become elevated maybe initially, that suggests that, you know, you're not digesting, assimilating, and using using the, the fat for fuel very well at the level of the mitochondria. So you're right. getting a buildup of triglycerides. If your triglycerides remain elevated and you're losing weight, that would really suggest that you're not. But if you are, but typically what people see is that uh, paradoxically, they could double and even triple the amount of fat that they're eating, lower their carbohydrate consumption, insulin goes down, and that promotes higher fat oxidation, triglycerides go down. So when I started following the ketogenic diet, I uh, did quite a lot of blood work and I saw I tripled or quadrupled my fat intake and my triglycerides literally went almost in half, I think. Mm -hmm. And I remember explaining this to my doctor and he was like, really? 
it was like, no, this can't be. And we, we, we did it again. So, uh, so I was a bit of a, I was very naive going into the ketogenic diet. I didn't realize that this was actually a thing that could happen. Some people had written about it, but uh, I think it, it's also reflecting because I was, you know, working out a lot and I was pretty metabolically fit at the time. So I was a really good fat oxidizer, but you, you have scenarios and I've seen it in kids and I've seen it sometimes medication can cause it where they go on a ketogenic diet and they have persistently elevated triglycerides. So that is really uh, the biggest indication that the ketogenic diet may not be for you. Carnivore higher fat diet may not be for you. Um, under all situations, though, I think a lower carb diet is optimal. So I think it's hard to argue. Well, the standard American diet is not optimal, but I think uh, carnivore diets on the spectrum of what humans can eat, a vegan diet is on the spectrum of what humans can eat. I do not think either diet is optimal, but I do think a low carbohydrate diet is optimal for humans. And that that's an omnivorous carnivore-like-ish diet. <laughs> uh, diet. And I just, you know, I, I think if you exclude meat from the diet, that's not optimal. Okay. Uh, I think some meat in the diets really is, is sort of is needed for proper nutrition. Then again, if I think I do think I have some thoughts about a carnivore diet that I've seen that you can get, it's like a hyper nutrition diet. And if you are, and I've seen this in guys that are trying to bulk up on a carnivore diet, eating lots of liver and things like that, that they're, they have, it's like overnutrition. And I think it's taxing out the liver with too much uh, B vitamins, too, too many, too much iron. Iron's probably the biggest I get blood work. I get my blood, um, I give blood every, you know, as much as I can. And, and I think um, there's some side effects of following a carnivore diet and that it's just too much nutrition. In the context of a weight loss diet, so when you're calorie restricting, then it becomes optimal because you're getting an extremely dense form of nutrition. Yes. And if you're in, in the context of a calorie deficit, now that's optimal because it will prevent nutritional deficiencies. So that's my opinion. And I think a vegan diet in the context of calorie restriction can do the opposite. So uh, I'd go out on a limb and kind of stay, say that. I know maybe I'll be attacked for that, but no, um, it's think- so crazy that you're bringing this up because I randomly ran into this. Um, I, I think I'm one of the few people in the internet world of things that get blood work with clients. And I started seeing, and I get hair mi- mineral tissue tests and I started seeing excess nutrients in people. And I was like, what is going on? I see excess copper. Um, I see excess chromium. Mm-hmm. Um, in some of the hair mineral. And then I started seeing some of the nitrogen going up and just started doing research on liver bile and everything. And even vitamin A, there's so much literature on hypervitaminosis A. And I started wondering, okay, like you said, if you are eating very little, if you're under eating, so then every single bite counts, then liver may be ideal, right? So maybe one ounce, um, but you can also get an inundated with too much copper from liver. And so I just started, you know, dotting the lines and everything that certain people were in excess hypervitaminosis or minerals, it was from like liver was one, right? So maybe like you said, I started thinking, oh my gosh, some people are like, well, liver's so good for us. Well, let's just eat a pound a day or half a pounder. 
and they're getting too much nutrition. And then it becomes a tax on your liver, which has to produce bile, right? Which has to Mm -hmm. break down the fat. So if you're, LDL is going up. Maybe it's not because you're not able to digest fat naturally, but because you're talk, taxing the liver. And I started seeing that. And when I brought it up, of course, people were upset in the carnivore community. Um, but yeah. it's so I love that you're bringing this up because I am completely on the same page. So I'm more of a fan of if you want to do carnivore long term, you have to eat a rainbow and be really smart with what you eat. So what I mean by rainbow, I mean add the sardines, the salmon. Um, but you know, a lot of people are like, well, there's like mercury toxicity or there's um, PFOAs in the water and you know, all these things. And it's just, so then just eat beef. And it's like, no, but beef doesn't even have a lot of thiamine, even if you eat the liver. Right. So, um, it's just little nuances that, um, I've been picking up with my clients, but there's not a lot of talk about it. And carnivore is so new. Not a lot of people are researching it. And yeah. so it's really fascinating. Um, it's interesting that you do the hair analysis and I got, do you mind telling me what kit you use? Do you, if you can give, yeah, cause so I'm trying I, to remember my kit and I want to know if it's the same one that you're so using. So I think they were called the TEI or the trace elements. Um, they're based in Addison, Texas. So I think the, the guy that owns that company and there's this one other company and they used to be um, one of the same and then they kind of split off from okay. each other. But yeah. they do the same thing. And then there's, um, I think it's from Doctor's Data. I think that's- Oh, Doctor's other. Data. That's what I was trying to okay. remember. There's doctor's an, Data. So they do something- so I use com- that. Okay. Yeah. What were your thoughts on that? Well, uh, so this got brought to my attention actually talking with Joe Rogan. I was on his oh, podcast, okay. but I think even offline, he had mentioned that, hey, that the sardines increase your mercury level or something. And uh, all I can, I can only vouch for- um, the the type of sardines I was eating. uh, And I looked for other like uh, bisphenol A and I don't know, different things that they put in the can linings too. Like I measured that too. Uh, I'm trying to, Wild Planet. Okay. So it was, yeah, I was eating like, like six cans of Wild Planet sardines a day, every day. A day? Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. On top of, you know, buying some fish at the store and things like that. Uh, We live on a farm too. So I catch fish sometimes. Uh, But so I, I, I did a hair sample, you know, months after massive consumption of, of canned fish and some tuna fish here and there too. And it was pretty, it was like in the low range. It was like within the, the healthy range. Sure. It was kind of trending like a little bit higher than normal, but within the normal range. And I've seen other things where people who don't need any fish are like sky high and everything. Yeah. But generally, and the bar was pretty set pretty low on that. So on this particular test. So, uh, cause I asked other people to do the test too. And some people were higher than me and they don't eat any sardines. I know. So it, it just basically confirmed that at least as brand wild planet. Uh, and I, I like to eat fish that are lower on the food chain. Yes. Uh, I do think that if I was eating a lot of swordfish or other things, yeah. I'd probably have that pinned out on that just based, I was, I read a lot of, you know, I, I looked at a lot of uh, forums and stuff online who use the same test and they were eating like a lot of tuna and sashimi and things like that. And they were very high. So I think if you're going to eat fish and you want to incorporate it in a regular, I think you're pretty safe sardines, at least from wild planet, they seem to be getting it from a, a pretty good source based upon, you know, my test. Yeah. Um, I, and I, I agree with you. So I don't know, you know, the internet's good and bad. You get a lot of information, but you also get a lot of fear mongering. So now mm-hmm. every time I share about fish, people are always like, aren't you worried about the toxicity in the waters? And, and just from all the hair minerals I've done, and I've done over mm-hmm. um, several hundred now. And 
a lot of them eat some fish, um, some don't eat at all, but the mercury is all over the map, right? So it could be from yeah. even um, our soils, it could be from some of the processed foods that we consume, we just don't know. Sometimes it's just balancing other minerals. Um, and there's just a, it could be from amalgams, right? It could be from your mom. There's just so much, so many places you could get it. Mm. But I think the if you were to weigh the pros and cons, the benefits of sardines and salmon and salmon roe, they're just so nutritionally dense with less risk of hypervitaminosis or toxicity. And that's why I'm a fan of fish, even though it's not the most desirable, especially on a carnivore diet, but it's just yeah. smarter, right? Um, and for women too, looking to get pregnant. So they, you know, some... Uh, at the time, I think my research associate, Dr. Angela Paul, she, she was my first graduate student. She's still in the lab, but I was I was kind of curious, I, not necessarily for her, but I was you know conveying the information to her too, and I wanted to do this because I wanted to understand what fish was doing to my body. But uh, I know for women who are pregnant or looking at pregnant, I think fish and omega threes offer a, a lot of benefits for the developing brain. And I guess you can get it in supplements and stuff too. But then you don't know could have heavy metals in that. But I, I don't think I think that we are potentially scaring women away from a super nutritious food for, food source that can aid in the development, you know, of the baby. Um, and maybe that's the case for other fish, but uh, for certain brands of, you know, fish, like small fish, like sardines, I think uh, it's totally, it might even be better than eating chicken or other, maybe even like rice, which is grown in tainted soil or something like that, which could be high in heavy metals. I remember about 10 years ago, someone told me that, uh, you know, this is going to be a big, big problem, like rice, like arsenic in rice or oh, heavy yeah. metals in rice. And I had never heard anything about it. And then a few years later, I saw some studies coming out on, on heavy metals in, in rice and grains, you know, in the soil. Yes, I've had a few kids do the, um, the mineral test and their arsenic is high in their aluminum. And so with the arsenic, mm -hmm. I always have to ask if they're having any, you know, like the rice crackers, the, the pincher grass little snacks that are made of rice, especially when we're getting away from gluten, gluten. So then it's the rice that they're eating or the corn puffs or the rice puffs. And, yeah. and a lot of them are. I have a question for you. Yes. Uh, so you don't mind. Uh, glyphosate. So I grew up on a farm spraying a lot of glyphosate, not wearing protective gear. We okay. live on a farm now. We phased all that stuff out. Uh, but I do, and I've never done the uh, test for glyphosate. Uh, and I, I, I've been just you know, uh, I kind of wanted my body to recover a little bit because I didn't want to scare myself too much. But uh, but is that something that you measured in yourself and do you measure in clients and do you, do you see it, that it has an impact? Uh, that's a good question. Are you so, on the fence about it? Yeah, no. So in my carnivore care book, I did a lot of research. So I did a lot of Stephanie Seneff's, um, like mm -hmm. I looked into her research um, and there's definitely correlations with a lot of disease and glyphosate spraying. And, and then I saw how much it's used in the world, aside from just in the crops, like they spray, you know, like Roundup is sprayed on our schoolyards. And then it, the half-life is like 15 days, or I forget how much, it might be more than that. In so Florida, they, it's pretty quick. Yeah, it breaks down. But in other places, it can okay. be in the soil for years. So it depends okay. on the climate and the soil. And, and that makes sense. And so when kids are stomping on the ground, they're inhaling direct Roundup, mm -hmm. right? Or glyphosate. Yeah, yeah. What's interesting about glyphosate, so there is a test you could do. Um, one of them, like Great Plains Labs, they have this urine test. And um, so I actually don't specifically um, 
track that only because my clients don't eat any um, like grains and stuff or anything that uses that. Now they might eat meats that have the genetically use the you know, the crops and stuff that had the glyphosate spray. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about that research though is, so the way that glyphosate works is that it sprays, um, it basically kills off a pathway called the shikimate pathway. And yep. so then it kills off the plants, right? So um, there are three aromatic amino acids and those protect against the damage of at least, um, I believe human cells or animal cells, and that will protect you from the damage of glyphosate. So obviously this is totally logic um, reasoning, but I thought, well, if the animals are consuming the glyphosate because of their levels of tryptophan, and I forget what the other aromatic amino acids are, maybe their bodies are protecting themselves so that by the time we eat it, we're not really getting the exposure to glyphosate because again, that pathway is not really, their bacteria might get affected. So the animal's uh, microbiome would get affected because it kills bacteria cells and our gut bacteria cells. But in terms of their meat itself may be protected based on their amino acids. And so therefore we're not getting as much of the adverse effects of eating these meats, even if they eat glyphosate rich plants and products. And so that's why when people say you can only eat grass finished, it's not necessarily true. They haven't done that research on glyphosate. I forget what the half-life is in the glyphosate, but it's absolutely, it It, it, it depends on the soil. Yeah. So here, so we live in plant city, which is known for the strawberry festival and we have strawberries growing all around us. So, you know, and they grow very fast and they're, they're heavily like, uh, you know, irrigated and fertilized. So after the, the, the workers come in and pick all the strawberries and they did this on our property, we own uh, uh, a lot of strawberry fields, what used to be strawberry fields. So, and then they come in with these big sprayers and just spray everything. And there's just miles, like square miles of just completely brown. And they just oh, wow. kill everything. Then they disc it up. Uh, yeah. Or no, then they just do a no-till and plant the next, next crop. But they don't want the weeds to compete. Yeah. And this is what they do. This is what I did growing up. I mean, you just spray everything because you don't want the weeds to compete. And then you, you put down your, your next crop. But, man, I... Uh, yeah, I was exposed to a lot of that stuff kind of kind of growing up. And uh, I always wonder, you know, I, I guess I did okay, but I don't know what the long-term implications are. And I've been meaning to, uh, I am, a, I live on a farm and was going to, uh, what was the name of the test that you measured? Uh, um, it's, I'll look it up. It's a urine test. Oh, it's a test urine that, test. Yeah, 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 it's yeah. a urine test that shows yeah. how much glyphosate you're releasing. But um, I think Dr. Stephanie Seneff would be a great person. She's done so much research on glyphosate. And um, I, I left some of the charts in my book with it, but it's like the correlation with consuming glyphosate-rich soy and corn, and then the risks of increase in autism, um, increases in all these metabolic diseases. And it's pretty scary. It's pretty linear. Um, yeah. yeah, I'll um, I'll give you that information. But I've been on yeah several email chains with with her okay. a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So I thought it was a little bit of fear mongering a few years back, and you know the more I started paying attention to it, I realized that there's definitely something to this. So um, the biggest thing I see is that regardless of when we actually consume it, if it's um, that scary, it's just the way that the glyphosate, the chemical works is that it kills off that gly- that shikimate pathway yeah. um, and our bacteria cells, our microbiome has it. And so every yeah. time you're eating it, you're eating like a little bit of sanitizer 
And so yeah. when we get sick without our microbiome, you have to wonder, is it some of that? And it's a lot of people, like you said, um, they'll spray it like the, the very end of the crop so that it desiccates faster. So then they could pull the, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it's on there and then they spray it in our schools and it's, it's literally sprayed everywhere. I mean, you could get it at oh, Home Depot and get Roundup, right? Oh, yeah, so, yeah. I was at Tractor Supply. Yes. I mean, it's like first thing you walk in and, you know, they sell the super concentrate in an off brand because there's, it's no longer under patent. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I have to admit, you know, I have a little bit at my house and we have some invasive species that if our cows eat it, they will get very sick and die. So it's the only way to eradicate it. But, uh, I try to pull everything out. Uh, but I have, you know, like a quart bottle and under occasion, you know, I'll use it, but it's not like all around me, like the entire fields are just go brown because they just dump, you know, tons of it all over. Uh, and that's, that's what can, you know, is really that we need to stop that. I mean, it's, I realize now, I mean, I grew up doing that, that kind of, that kind of farming, but we're gravitating a certain amount of years before you can legally become like a regenerative farm. So we're moving in that direction and just, uh, everything has been phased out for years, but it takes a while to repair the land. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I believe our bodies are resilient enough that as we um, eat the right foods for our body that it will heal. So even if there's glyphosate in our systems that yeah. we can get it out. I know for sure that in the book, I talk about how long there was somebody that measured the urine in certain people that ate uh, just, you know, a standard American diet and the exponential amount of glyphosate that was found in the urine within 20 years was significantly high. And it's scary because even though I don't really eat a ton of plants, I know I'm getting exposed to it all the time. Even if I go to the mm-hmm. kid's playground, right, and I'm jumping around, I'm inhaling it. Or my neighbors yeah. are using it, and when the wind blows, there I'm getting some, right? So it's yeah, it's impossible to not be around, but I just logically is, well, if I just eat less plants, then I'll probably get less exposure, which then mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, so why are you so opposed to the carnivore diet, just out of curiosity? Thanks for listening to part one of this two-part series. Next week, I'll share part two of this very interesting ketogenic conversation. You guys know the drill. Make sure to eat a lot of meat. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. Stay tuned for next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.